This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall, and I am flying solo tonight. Yet again, my dear colleagues and co-hosts, Mike Yuseem and Jeff Klein, are off for the evening. And I'm especially uh, disappointed that Mike uh, is unable to be here tonight because I know that he would have a real thrill and treat speaking to our guest, and he is Eric J. McNulty, and he is the author of a new book called You're It, Crisis Change and How to Lead When It Matters Most. And Mike has written uh, books with Howard Conruther, his dear colleague, on disasters. So, Mike, uh, this show is for you. And Eric, I think you're here and ready to join us on the show. I am in, and thank you very much for having me. Well, Eric, it's really is a pleasure to have this opportunity to talk to you about your book, Your It, Crisis Change and How to Lead When It Matters Most. Let me say just a word or two about you, and then we will talk about your book. Eric, you are Associate Director of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, also known as NPLI, which is a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Harvard Kennedy School of Government Center for Public Leadership. You're a contributing editor and columnist, and you've written for Harvard Business Review, among many, many other noted publications. So, Eric, maybe just to start first, can you tell us a little bit about the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, the NPLI? Absolutely. And, and first, we have the, the world's longest formal title. So thank you very much for <laughs> okay. going through it all and getting it right. No, um, thank you. Uh, so we, we are a leadership development program that was stood up uh, shortly after 9-11 when people from the federal government came to Harvard and said, among the challenges we see in this new world of disaggregated threats is the need for various agencies to work together. Mm. And can you help us establish a leadership platform that will teach some of those principles. And it started out largely working with the different components of the federal government. Remember that uh, Department of Homeland Security had just been put together, 23 agencies put under one roof, and then expanded out to their state and local counterparts. And now we do a lot of work as well with the private sector uh, and the nonprofit sector, all geared toward equipping those who are leading those organizations to get to the best possible outcome when they confront adverse circumstances. Oh, very good. So as I understand uh, your explanation, then you are here to coach them on how to communicate, coordinate, and how to lead in the face of disaster. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. And just to, just because I'm curious, can you help me understand uh, the affiliation? This is a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and also the Harvard Kennedy School of Government Center for Public Leadership. Just help us understand a little bit why these two schools. Well, the the original nexus was in government, um, and some of the impetus for the program, the initial funding came out of the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control. So they had a strong interest in public health. Ah. But they also understood that if they just housed this at the School of Public Health, the rest of government wouldn't show up. And if they just just housed it at the Kennedy School, a number of the other traditional response agencies had, Mm -hmm. I could have to say it nicely, but didn't always have public health at the table. Okay. They thought by bringing those two together, you would get the best of both worlds and and do some crossbreeding of thinking. If you're going to get the government to work well together, you've got to get Harvard to work well together, too. And that's almost as daunting a challenge. Very good. And now I've had the pleasure of reading through your book, and you've got one line that I... I do want to come to, and that's about leading beyond your authority. And am I right in thinking that this venture, in part, is an exercise in leading beyond your authority? Absolutely. And I think that one of the things that we have found to be consistently true is 
you almost always have less authority than you think you have and certainly less authority than you need to be acting alone. Mm. And so when you don't have enough full authority, if you don't have enough capability or capacity, you need to be working with other organizations, be they public, private, or nonprofit. You need to be able to leverage the entire ecosystem to Mm. respond to a given event. Oh, very good. And now just a word. So, Eric, uh, when you were young, when you were 10, did you think you'd be doing this? Absolutely not. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think back to when I was 10, it was, I was either in my urban planner or oceanographer phase. I'm not sure which of the two Okay. at that point. But, um, you know, I came to this program, uh, it, was a, it was a bit of happenstance. I was uh, actually worked for 10 years over at Harvard Business Publishing, working for Harvard Business Review, running conferences for them. And uh, as part of that, I met director and the then associate director of the NPLI um, when I was doing a conference on business preparedness for pandemics. Hmm. And uh, when it came time, you may may recall there was a small dip in the economy back in 2008. Yes. (laughs) And that was a time when it was going to get pretty difficult in the conference business, so I needed to find a new home within Harvard and was talking to them, and they asked if I could help uh, come help them with some writing, some research, uh, and also begin to to inject the case method into the teaching of the program, and I thought that sounded like fun. Oh, great! And I and had learned I had learned a lot about business on the leadership on the business side from my time at Harvard Business Publishing, and was able to bring that perspective. And then learned a whole lot by being exposed to what they've done in the public sector, the military, and other domains with which, which I was pretty much unfamiliar when I when I came in in two thousand and eight. Oh, great! And maybe uh, just to be even-handed, maybe a word about your co-authors. And they are Leonard J. Marcus, Joseph M. Henderson, and Barry C. Dorn. And yes, so uh, Lenny, Joe, and Barry uh, have been there from the beginning when the program was stood up. Uh, Joe Henderson actually was the person who brought the original funding to Harvard when he was at the CDC. He was at the time the head of their Office of Preparedness and Response. Uh, he's recently retired from there and is now on a member of our program faculty at the MPLI. Uh, Lenny is the original uh, founding co-director. Barry was the original associate director. And Lenny and Barry had worked together for many years doing conflict negotiation and uh, conflict resolution and negotiation, largely, principally in healthcare, which sounds disconnected, but actually I think is quite interesting in that infused into our approach to leadership and to the meta-leadership model that we, we teach has its roots in conflict resolution and negotiation, getting people to work together, motivating them, getting teams to work well. There's a lot of negotiation in there, and those principles of interest-based negotiation really play out strongly in what we do. Very good. All right, well, how about let's talk a little bit about your book, and I'm tempted to go uh, in order and to ask you a little bit about the ingredients for uh, leading in the face of crisis. So what would you say are essential? Crises are, you know, by definition, they are chaotic. Uh, there are high consequences. Um, things tend to be fast-moving. Your information is often incomplete or conflicting. So it's a very difficult operating environment. And so what we teach is the, is the framework we have developed called meta-leadership. Meta meaning to take a broad view and, and step back because in a crisis, it's very easy to get focused on details of what's in front of you, what I have to do right this second. If you're going to lead, you have to be able to step back and see that bigger picture. So the meta prefix is a a reminder to come back and take that view. And then there are three dimensions within the model. The first is the person. is you as an individual. And do you understand yourself, where you're coming from, your strengths and your weaknesses? Are you regulating your emotions well? Do you understand how your brain works under pressure? So are you as an individual functioning well? And then with that understanding, helping others to function well also. The second dimension is the situation. It's what's actually happening, and therefore, what do you need to do about it? And again, in a fast-moving crisis with lots of different factors unfolding, it can be difficult to discern what's actually happening and what you need to worry about. And the third piece is connectivity, and that goes back to getting everyone to work well together. It's how do you see the system? Where are the uh, leverage points in that system? Where are the resources? Where's the expertise? How do you bring people together, get them focused on the same mission, and then collaborating and coordinating and communicating effectively, you can get to that best possible outcome. Mm. That sort of simple framework of person, situation, and connectivity gives people a way to, to organize their thinking and their actions 
and also if things are not quite going well, to look at, okay, which of these three buckets might hold the, the problem I need to solve to get us back on track. Mm, so good. And I, I really personally do appreciate your starting with the person and strengths and weaknesses. I'm uh, one of the lead instructors of the opening gateway course for incoming uh, Wharton first-year students, freshmen. And uh, the title of the course is Business and You. <laughs> and the important uh, starting point is really to have some self-awareness, some understanding of your strengths, what you're good at, but also maybe some of your uh, weaknesses or foibles and to think about how others might compliment you. So I'm wondering, how do you go about getting people to be thoughtful about the person, getting to understand themselves? Uh, one of the things we have found that's most successful is actually to talk about um, the neuroscience of how your brain is wired. Uh, because people, particularly, again, subject matter experts who are who have been in the emergency management space or been in the military, been in some of these hardcore uh, specialties, don't always initially embrace things like psychology or mindfulness or some of the other tools that we that we eventually get to. Right. But understanding that... Uh, you know, you have a hardwired response to threat. You are going to trigger that triple F freeze, flight, fight response. You know, we call it going to the basement. Right. And Goldman calls it your an amygdala hijack. Knowing that's going to happen, and then understanding how to get out, and you do that by demonstrating self competence, not confidence, but competence. Doing something you know how to do sort of resets your brain, like rebooting a computer. So, working with tools like that, people seeing hard science and saying, "Oh, okay, this is the way." I am as a human being, I'm wired. This is not soft, squishy stuff. It's actually hard science. That opens them up to looking at and wanting to understand more about how they function and how they work. And then once you've opened the door, then you can talk about the emotional component and get into emotional intelligence, regulating emotions, self-awareness. We also find journaling is, is quite powerful, and it's why we have journaling questions at the end of each chapter in the book. Again, people can sometimes be resistant to it, say, oh, that's not what grown-ups do, or oh, I haven't got time for that. We get them into doing a little bit of it. Well, we, we've got them in a, a program and encourage them to keep going, and people have found it incredibly valuable, and people I never thought would embrace it are in contact two or three, four years later saying they now journal almost every day because they found it that valuable. Mm, that's great. Well, I, I did, uh, in reading through your book, I did appreciate the section on um, you know just talking about the brain and the three parts the basement you just described when that that's our survival instinct the workroom where we go through routine patterns and I also like the laboratory where we able where we're able to exercise creative thinking so by walking through uh, the physiology the neuroscience you get people open to thinking about about themselves and to be reflective through journaling. Can you say a little bit more about how you get them to do deep reflection? Because I also, um, you know, like to ask students to reflect as well, but sometimes I find those reflections can be very surface level, simply descriptions of what happened and not so much um, an analysis or uh, deeper interpretation of those events. So how do you get people to do some deeper journaling? Part of that is, telling them about our own journaling. And I want to give Barry Dorn credit because he was the one who first got this started. And Barry's a retired orthopedic surgeon, so he's about as um, (laughs) hard-driving as Mm -hmm. they come. Um, And when he opens up and talks about journaling and what he's learned about it and how he uses it in his life, um, he's modeling the behavior we want them to exhibit. And so he shares some of what he's learned through his journaling. Um, That, again, gives people a, a, a role model to follow. I think the other piece for those who are um, in, in one of our exec ed programs as opposed to those who just read the book, one of our instructors from the Kennedy School is General Dana Bourne. She's mm. a uh, former academic dean of the Air Force Academy, and she's a practitioner of authentic leadership, and she does a very powerful session where she reveals her story, and I'm not going to give it away right. on her behalf here, um, but it's a very powerful about the good things that happened to her and the not good things that happened to her. and how acknowledging and working with both sides of that coin, she's come into her fullness as a leader. And again, that's a role model. She's a general. She's from the military. This is not a soft, squishy person who has gone through the self-discovery process. So that also 
helps people when they see someone speak about it and own it. It opens them to try it a bit. And once they try it, it's kind of like candy. It's good. You get, you get a good reaction, and you build, build toward um, more powerful reflection. And we've had, I've had students who came back with, who were willing to share it with the class, mm. who've shared some things that, that are pretty deep and said, because you guys put it all out there, I felt like I needed to put it all out there, too. Oh, that's great. Really great. Well, let me remind everyone that you're listening to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. And I am Ann Greenhall, and I'm here tonight with pleasure speaking with Eric J. McNulty, Eric McNulty, about his new book, You're It, Crisis Change and How to Lead When It Matters Most. All right, so Eric, we've talked about the three ingredients. We talked about the person, you name the situation, and connectivity. Let's talk a little more about the situation. How should we think think, about that? I think that the the challenge in the situation, as I mentioned earlier, is that in a crisis or even a period of significant change in an organization, there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of ambiguity. And so it can be difficult to, to see What's the next step to take? What am I going to need to do three, four, ten steps down the road? Yet you have to give people some sense of where you're going. You need to have a vision of what success looks like um, and you know, help create some, an island of certainty for people that you at least know what you're doing and you've, you've successfully diagnosed the problem. And we have a number of tools for that. One of them is, uh, I'm sorry, it's the world's worst acronym called POPDOC, <laughs> uh, which stands for perceive, orient, predict, and then decide, operationalize, and communicate. And it's built on, for those Air Force fans out there, Boyd's OODA loop, uh, which is observe, orient, decide, and act. They is still used to train most of the fighter pilots in the world. And it was to give people a disciplined process, and our four, six steps of POP and DUCK are the six cognitive processes you go through as a human when things are going well. When you're processing information properly, this is what you do. And so by articulating it and giving people a a process to go through, it helps them stop and think, okay, let's proceed. Let's get gather a lot of data. Let's pull all the facts in as best we can. Let's orient. Where are the patterns? What do we think this means? And once you get a pattern, patterns tend to repeat. You can predict what's going to happen next because as a leader, you want to be anticipating and be one step ahead of what's going to come at you, not two steps behind. And then you traverse to the second side of this figure eight loop. Um, you have to make decisions. You have to get things going. Otherwise, you're to seal paralysis by analysis trap. So it prompts <laughs> you to line up your decisions, operationalize. What are, what are you going to need to carry out those decisions? What are the, the people, the resources, the time, the money, whatever it happens to be. And then you better communicate so everyone knows what's going on. Otherwise, you wind up working at cross purposes. So that's one of the tools we have to get people to systematically drive toward knowing more, adapt to the situation as it changes, and always trying to be anticipating, staying one step ahead of how events are going to unfold. That's so great. All right, let's recap on that. So the model is called, or the tool is called POPDOC, P-O-P-D-O-C, and half of the model is the thinking side, and the other half is the action side. And on the thinking side, POP, we have perceive, orient, and predict. And on the action side, doc, decide, operationalize, and communicate. All right, I love it. So, but now you're saying this is what goes on sort of in daily, non-stress, routine life. Is that right? Did I hear you right? That's right. I mean, this, this, this is, I love when I teach this to people in the healthcare field, because they stop for a second and say, oh, when I'm diagnosing a patient, this is exactly what I do. <laughs> Great. Great. I, I look at all, I look at all, what are the, the presenting symptoms? I look for a pattern to see what it might be. I make a prediction that I run some tests. I try and figure, you know, confirm what it is, make a decision on a, on a treatment plan. I communicate it to the patient, and that's how the whole thing works. If I walk into your office with a, with a business challenge, again, you're going to say, okay, Give me the facts. What's going on here? Mm-hmm. Try and make sense of them. We're natural sense makers and pattern seekers as, as humans. And you then go, okay, I see what's happening now. I, let me guess what's going to happen next, and how are we going to solve it? You decide. You try and allocate some resources against those decisions, and you make sure people know what's going on. So 
This was not a sort of theoretical construct. We looked at mm-hmm. when you're moving through situations in a disciplined way and getting to the best possible outcome, here are the steps you go through. We just tried to articulate them because in a crisis, sometimes you need a reminder because things are just swirling all around you. Mm. Very good. And now, Eric, uh, it's the teacher in me, and I know that I, I think you're going to appreciate this. You're also reminding me of the case method, which is a very popular teaching method uh, with great roots at Harvard and used across the country in which students are given um, narratives, you know, typically incomplete narrative stories, and asked to uh, identify the issue, analyze, and solve it. And I think there's a bit of pop doc in that method. Absolutely. I think you're, you're, you're spot on. All right. <laughs> okay. So now um, you also, now, but now when we're in a crisis and things are not routine, you have an expression, I think it's relevant here, and it's called driving to the knowns. So can you say a little bit more about that? How do we, how do we figure out what it is that we do, in fact, know when we're a little overwhelmed and, and unsure Yes, and this and this is actually one of our newer tools. We've developed it fairly recently, again, based on watching leaders in crisis and seeing where do they get stuck. And the, in driving to the known, there are four, four quadrants in a box, and in the upper right corner is the known knowns. So <laughs> if something happens, you say, okay, what do we know? Um, you know, what, you know there, was, there were two explosions. There were three people injured. We know that. Okay you are likely to know what are the first four or five questions you're going to ask. You know, is anybody, is anybody missing? Are there any people killed? Those kind of things. Those are the known unknowns. You know which questions to ask, and you know of whom to ask them. And most situations in our routine or even routine emergencies are solved within those two boxes. You know something, and then you know where to go find enough information to go solve it. But in a true crisis, in a large, complex event, there are things that you may not know, but somebody else will. Those are the unknown knowns. That's why you would call in an expert. For example, if you had one of your executives had been kidnapped, which I've been with companies when they've gone through this, you call in a kidnap and ransom expert because they know things about that specialty that you don't. And if you don't think to call that expertise in, you may make mistakes that have adverse consequences, sometimes really severe adverse consequences. And so this is, again, this the the four quadrants in this grid are meant to prompt you to go through the process to remember, okay, what don't we know and who might know it? Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting examples from one company that I work with, they've actually put together a, an event register, um, mm-hmm. a global company of who has confronted what kind of crises. So who's been through flooding, who's been through a, uh, industrial accident of one kind or another, who's been through a kidnapping and ransom situation. So that you've got a, if you're facing that, you can go see, okay, Jane Smith handled this last year. Let me call Jane and see what she, what she knew that's not in the manual or not in the stuff that I've been taught. You know where to, you know where to go. It helps surface those unknown, those, those known, unknown knowns. And then lastly are the unknown unknowns. These are the things you truly can't predict, but they're, it's really helpful in, uh, in scenario building, in working through drills and exercises to think, what might happen that we haven't thought about at all? You know, the uh, 2017, the hurricanes that hit the southern U.S. FEMA knows they're going to get a certain number of hurricanes in the season. They can roughly predict it's going to be an active season or a less than that, less active season. What they couldn't predict, the unknown unknown, was the exact timing and sequence of the various storms. Mm. So that's why you... I know they've worked through many times. They worked through two back-to-back storms. They hadn't fully thought through three. Um, and so that's a place where it's mo- that last box is most useful when you're doing your brainstorming and your, your scenario building to try and strengthen those patterns in your, in your, your toolbox in your brain, the workroom. But so you're always good. trying to drive mm-hmm. to the known. If, you're, if you as a leader are working through a process saying, what do we know and how can we know more, the more you know, the better you can deal with the situation. And you see, you need to never stop probing to figure out what more could you know, who could tell it to us, how can we uncover it, and how are, how are the facts changing on the ground? Because after the fact, the thing that you'll get called out on are the things you could have known Ooh. but somehow didn't know. Oh, boy. <laughs> 
Oh, well, how about Sorry, on... It's a little complicated. To oh, it's visual, great. I have to say, but I hope you did a good job. I there. think you did a great job. And in fact, we're up on a break, and that's perfect because I'm going to ask you, you open your book with 102 Hours in Crisis, the Boston Marathon Bombing's Response. And that had uh, that opening had a personal reson- resonance with me because my son, Tom, was a student at Boston University at the time and an avid runner, and not far from the finish line when those bombings took place. So fortunately, I'm, you know, the event was tragic for many, but I fortunately, and he was unscathed. What I would like you to do after the break, if you if you can, is walk us through driving to the knowns using the Boston Marathon bombings as an illustration. Can you do that? Sure thing. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. All right, Eric, before the break, we were picturing your grid. Uh, it's a quadrant. It has the known on one side and the unknown in the other. And we were walking through on what we know we know and we can use, what we don't know but is knowable. It's out there, so we've got to find it. And then what is known but unknown to us. Do I have it right? That's right. And that's something that we need to assemble. And then finally, the truly unknown, and that is something that we need to imagine. So I asked you, if you would, to just sort of walk us through that using the example of the uh, Boston Marathon um, uh, tragedy back in, when was it exactly? Remind me, 2013. April 15th, 2013. Right. Uh, It was a beautiful day here in Boston. It was a perfect day to run a marathon which you know, in Boston is not always the case. We get everything from scorching heat to near-blizzard conditions in April. Uh, but in 2013, it was an ideal day for running a race. Lots of people out along the route. Uh, it was 2.49 p.m. The, the elite runners had already gone through, and now right. we are uh, sort of the average folks, as it were, um, coming through. And there was an explosion very close to the finish line. Right. Twelve seconds later, a second explosion. This is the first example of driving to the known. When the people we interviewed, which for everyone from the governor down to first responders and across different sectors, about almost three dozen people in leadership positions that day, almost universally they said when they heard there was one explosion, yeah. they thought it was pro- probably benign. It could have been a manhole cover because we've been having some problems with manhole covers blowing off. It could have been a propane tank on a food truck um, because that would be fairly common. But as soon as they heard the, that there was a second explosion, mm. They knew there were two. They went and said, this, this is bad. This is, this is not a benign circumstance. And that's when they began going into the intelligence and saying, okay, they had, they had their, first, their first questions. Great. How many wounded? Is anybody killed? Who's on scene? They knew the first set of questions to ask, and they began to assemble that picture of what was going on. And I think another important point here, which is related to, to how you go about knowing things, the senior people, most people in the various organizations, had largely left the scene. Because again, the, the elite runners had gone through. So the governor was on his way home to see his grandkids. Mm. The police commissioner was off, uh, was going home. People, you know, leaving it to the second in command, as it were, at that point, because it's the race is, is winding down. They all turned around and came physically to the scene. Oh. And that's a very important thing for leaders. You, you need to make your presence known as long as it's safe to do so. Um, and so they all were like, you know, even though it was described to them over the radio, they've got to go. They wanted to see what was there so they could um, assemble their own picture of what they knew and what questions they had. Now, it's interesting that because you then go into, you tap into the intelligence in terms of the the uh, unknown knowns. What does somebody else know that you don't know? Right. And begin tapping into intelligence saying, you know, who could this have been? What, what could be going on? An interesting thing here, why is part of why it's important to keep asking questions and driving toward that, what you actually know as opposed to what you think or speculate. I happen to be here in Washington, in, in Boston. I live right near the right course, hmm. and um, I was triangulating information from various sources. And here in Boston, the officials came to the conclusion this had to be international terrorists. 
Hmm. because they looked at the situation and they said, well, we know most of the local bad guys. We've got a handle on what they're up to. Um, so this had to be somebody internationally who did this. In Washington, where my colleague Lenny happened to be that day, and he was uh, already had a scheduled appointment of the National Counterterrorism Center, they looked at the same data and came to the conclusion this had to be domestic terrorists. It was April 15th, which is tax day. It's a day that has a, a lot of uh, oh. resonance with domestic terrorists, and they came to the conclusion it was uh, with domestic terrorists. So here you have two different groups of people looking at the same data and coming to very different conclusions. Right. Um, and it was only by continuing to you know share information, look back and forth, continuing to probe and drive toward that known that they you know, ultimately it was a sort of a hybrid of the two. It was two brothers who lived here in the States, yeah. although they had been radicalized overseas. Um, and so unraveling all of that. And then throughout the week, it was a matter of, you know, again, they, they, they knew visually who the two brothers were before they had their identities. They knew they were black hat and white hat um, because they gathered a lot of photographic and video evidence and went through and they had concluded that. Uh, but they still didn't know who they were it took several days to figure out who they were. Uh, and therefore what to do about it. And so um, it, they went through this very sequential process of always trying to assemble. And, and the media, on the other hand, there was a lot of speculation going on. Yeah, yeah. I remember my, my colleague, Julia Kayyem from the Kennedy School, who was also on CNN a lot. She spent a lot of time saying, that's supposition. Right. Here's what we know. Right. And trying to pull people back because it's really tempting to, yeah. once you speculate, to chase something down a rabbit hole that may may or may not be true. And so mm-hmm. you're always trying to drive to that. What do we know? What can we confirm? What do we have evidence? What, what's evidence-based? And let's base our decisions on that and predict and then go test our hypotheses, more hypotheses, fewer assumptions. Mm. Very good. And I think, is it fair to say that initially when you talk about asking the questions, that uh, looking at the data and one group in Boston saying, we think this is international terrorism, a group in Washington saying no domestic, these at this point are both speculations. Is that fair to say? That's correct. At that point, at that point what they know is there were two bombs that have exploded. They thought there were going to be more. If you think back, four planes on 9-11, four bombs in London, four bombs in Madrid. Mm. They thought there were going to there well could be more bombs, which, which is a whole different set of uh, decisions that had to get made on scene about whether to evacuate people or try and hold them in place, those kind of things. And again, you're, you're thinking, you're looking for a pattern. This is back to Pop Doc. Yeah. What do we, you know, and um, what's the pattern we're expecting here? Um, but yes, yeah, so it was a matter of continually putting little pieces together um, and comparing notes and seeing, again, what do we know? We know there are three people who were killed instantly. We ultimately knew there were 264 wounded, all of whom survived, by the way, uh, because they were quickly transported to hospitals in a very efficient and pre-planned manner. There was a lot of, they, they actually had uh, run a drill very similar to the actual bombing two years prior. Oh, wow. And so that kind of, it was, Different place and different timing, but a very similar kind of incident. And so they had plans in place, which kicked in um, and helped them uh, operate as smoothly as they did. Hmm. And now, Eric, just to press a little bit, can you? Is it possible for you to tie that unknown, unknown, an illustration of imagining in that scenario? Well, I think in that scenario, yes. I mean, they, the uh, the unknown unknowns um, were there other elements of this group? Were uh. there going to be similar explosions in other cities? Was this just the first salvo? Um, they had no intelligence to confirm this, but it wasn't, un- and they had, they had no way of knowing those things. Um, I mean, yes, in theory, if there were other terrorists, they knew what they were going to do, but there was nothing. You sift through all the different intelligence things they knew. They were There was no way they could know if there were going to be more bombers out there uh, if this was just these two, or were there four more people sitting somewhere else in Boston or elsewhere? And so that's what you begin to imagine. Okay, what if? Okay, we better think about thinking about looking at the airport, the train stations. Who else do we have to bring into this mix to try and assemble as complete a picture as we can? Mm, that's great. Thank you so much for walking through that. And now, just so we don't lose the thread, at the very top of the hour, you know, we talked about the three ingredients of meta leadership here. 
And the first is the person and self-knowledge. The second is the situation. And we've been teasing through how to get a handle on the situation during crisis. And the third is connectivity. So maybe we should talk a little bit about that. Um, And so where would you like to start in speaking about connectivity? Well, I think when we speak about connectivity in terms of leading, we, we have four facets or four directions we think about. One is leading down. That's to your team, the people who report to you. And that's where most of the leadership literature, that's what most of it addresses. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how, do you, how, how are you an effective team leader? How do you run your, your, your organization? Mm-hmm. But you also have to lead up to your boss. I mean, everyone's got a boss, be it a CEO, the CEO's got a board, the board has shareholders, and on and on. Um, everybody has a boss, and so we call it leading up, helping that boss understand the situation, help that person make good decisions, set priorities by making sure they get good information from the bottom coming up to them as unfiltered as possible. And then you also have to lead across, mm-hmm. which in our terminology are the other departments or business units within your organization, so the other silo, operational silos, functional areas. Uh, you're under one governance structure, but you're often – separate, those are your peers, and then beyond to the entities outside of your organization with whom you are dependent, your success is dependent. So in the case of the Boston Marathon bombing, you had to say Boston Police Department, they had their various operational silos. They're leading across that entire department, Mm -hmm. but they also had to lead beyond to state police, FBI, fire, EMS, the Boston Athletic Association, media, the general public. There were a lot of entities they needed to lead over whom they had no authority. So when we talk about connectivity, it's, it's thinking about those four different directions, and there is a different calculus about authority versus influence in each one of those, yeah. and about how you think about getting the best possible outcome using all of those different assets. Oh, that's great. And now, at the risk of seeming too academic, could you uh, just tease that out a little bit? When you talk about authority, how do you speak about it, and how do you distinguish that from influence? That's a very good question because, yes, I mean, when you dig into influence, authority is part of how you influence people. Um, but we, the way we tease it out is the, your authority is that which is formally vested in you by your organization. It comes with your job description. You're allowed to spend up to a certain amount of money. You can hire and fire certain people. You can make certain decisions. You're, you know, think of it as a box you, that's attached to your office, right? So this is the authority <laughs> and the things that you are – Somewhere on paper, it says you're supposed to do and you're allowed to do. And then influence is everything beyond that. Um, so how do you, again, with working with your peers, mm-hmm. you have no authority over them. Also, you're in a compliance function. But how do you get them to cooperate with you and, and support your initiative? Your boss. You have no authority over your boss. But how do you enlist your boss as an ally and a supporter, uh, not as an adversary and not someone breathing down your neck? Um, and so, you know, it's... It's uh, Robert Cialdini's work in uh, down at the Arizona State that we use a lot. His book Persuasion, and he has mm-hmm. six components of of, uh, of influence, one of which is authority. But we, you know, the the lesson we try to impart to people is that box of authority is all, always limited because mm-hmm. with your position, and when you change positions, you get a new box, hopefully a bigger one because you got the promotion, <laughs> but you get a different one. Influence you can grow over your entire career, and there's no limit to how much you can accrue. Yeah. If people see that you've got integrity, they see you're smart, they like being around you because you're you know, a pleasant person and a good collaborator, all those things give you influence. You get invited into conversations. Your opinion is welcome for decisions. People are happy to have you in the room. And that gives you the ability to recruit a lot of allies and mobilize a lot of resources when you have that kind of influence. So again, I wish Jeff were here, Jeff Klein, because uh, he he would love this discussion, and he speaks a lot about the limitations of authority and the infinite possibilities of influence through relationships. That's a perfect way to think about it. <laughs> yeah, that's great. All right, so again, um, maybe, and your choice here, if you want to stick with the uh, Boston Marathon um, bombings or move to another crisis, could you help us see um, an illustration of someone leading, you know, of course, leading down, leading up, leading across, and leading beyond? Is there a good illustration of that that comes to mind? Maybe business, perhaps. Yeah, b- business is a good one. And I think that um, there, are, there are so many to choose from. 
and I think that the the one that I like is one of the ones from the book is a story uh, of a turnaround at a company called Premier Farnell. Now, and, I, and Premier Farnell is a phenomenally unsexy business. They do electronic parts distribution, and I love phenomenally unsexy businesses <laughs> because you know it's, it's easy to find things that that are you know that you can have fun with at Google or or Facebook, but when you get to a company that has to execute and execute really well um, and attract talent, even though it's not it's not the most ex- on the outside, anyway, exciting place to be. That's a company that has to get it right. And so Premier Farnell and, and brought in a new CEO named Harriet Green. She's now at uh, at IBM, but at the time she was CEO of Premier Farnell. And they were not in a great place. They were uh, had not modernized. They had not digitized the business. Uh, and in, in a business where your your entire competitive advantage is, is how fast and how accurate can you be getting specialized parts to various places around the world, it's uh, it's logistically quite complex and she came in and one of the things she did in leading down to her team is she's an outsider now on day one she sent a company-wide email uh, with her picture she wanted people to see who she was <laughs> and said i'm here um you know we've got a lot of work to do we've got a you know a difficult situation however i cannot do it alone you and this company know it better than anyone else and i'm looking counting on your ideas and your help in doing this and she left, gave her email and said, I want to hear from you. And lo and behold, cautiously at first, one or two people wrote her an email and said, hey, I've got an idea. And she answered them. Oh, great. And that spread like wildfire. So then she began getting more and more and more. And But initially she opened herself up and said, I don't have all the answers. I need you to help me turn this around. So it made herself a little bit vulnerable, uh, but also gave people who were anxious to help make the company better gave them a vehicle to, to rise up. So that was sort of leading down. Leading up, she had to lead up to the board and get them to invest in digitizing this business, the significant technology investments to get them uh, to be able to, to compete with their rivals and have faith in her, uh, making some pretty radical changes. Uh, and granted, she had the, uh, the advantage of the, the, the downside of not getting it right was they probably were going to be out of business. So um, that, was, that, that helped. But she led very effectively up to the board and said, here's my vision, here's what we're going to do, here are the changes we need to make. Across, you had to get cooperation from these business units that were, in, that were entrenched and had done business a certain way for a long, long time, and now you're telling them they're going to have to work very, very differently. Mm-hmm. And it was a matter of a, a common vision, pointing out where it was going, hearing them out in terms of why they might object, and but, but pushing them very hard. Um, and I think the most one of the most impressive things was the leading beyond. Mm-hmm. One of the things they realized was that their customers were their engineers who are you know in, in the proverbial startup garage doing everything from the next uh, uh, smartphone uh, to high-end uh, prosthetics, all kinds of devices that use electronic components. But they're largely alone. So what they did was they built a, an online community for their customers. So they could communicate with each other. They gave them some design tools to help them, but they let them talk amongst each other with no filtering here. If they wanted to say the company was doing a great job, that was fine. If they wanted to say the company was screwing up, that's great too because now they learned something. And by creating this community around the company, they actually tied the customers to them much more closely, but they did it in a way that wasn't, you know, wasn't price-driven. It wasn't, hey, we're going to try and sell you stuff. It was we're going to help you do your job better. And they created the tools to help them do their job better. And the company did turn around. It was doing quite well. It continued to grow through the recession, uh, through the Great Recession, uh, and it's still doing well today. So hmm. I think what Harriet did was a, it's a very good example of how to look at that larger system, see where your leverage points are, and, again, very much an, an influence versus authority story. There are places she definitely exercised her authority to make right. things happen and move some people out, but a lot of it was done through influence. Oh, that's great. All right, I've got a thought, but before I add that thought, let me be sure to say that you're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall, and I'm speaking with Eric McNulty about his book, You're It, Crisis Change, and How to Lead When It Matters Most. So, I again, I'm thinking of my dear co-host, Mike Useem. If Mike Useem were here, I think he would add that the very uh, model that you've described of leading down, leading up, leading across, and leading beyond 
happens at all, or ideally, happens at all levels of the organization. And he calls this layered leadership. (laughs) So the person who wrote to Harriet, you know, when she invited someone from below to write and give her a thought or comment, an idea, that person was leading up. (laughs) So, you know, ideally, I think we would see in organizations at all levels, leading down, leading up, across, and beyond. Would you agree with that, Eric? Absolutely. And and I try very hard not to use the word leader as attached to a title or a position. Mm. Um, Leading as a behavior uh, is is behavior-driven. I think leading, when leading happens at every level of an organization, the organization is much more likely to succeed because you want people thinking that way within their domain, right? Not running the whole company from every level, but in their position, leading and down, up, across, and beyond, but thinking with that bigger picture in mind and how to get to that best possible outcome. All right. Well, now, Eric, we have just a a little bit of time left, so I've got a few little stray questions I'd love to weave in along the way. And uh, another one, this is another one of my uh, pet favorite topics, and you do address it in your book. Can you talk a little bit about implicit association, cognitive bias um, in decision-making, especially in the face of crisis? Well, understanding that um, we are not fully rational thinkers, we are not fully conscious thinkers, is to to begin to understand the limitations of how much we understand about our brains and therefore how aware we need to be of what's happening that we that we may not otherwise be aware of. And, of course, I think, you know, Dan Kahneman, your uh, yeah. colleague, is, is uh, I recommend, I wish I was getting royalties on his book because I recommend it to <laughs> a million people. Uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, for those of you in the listening audience who may not have read it, is a great primer on how this works. And once you begin to understand that our brain has these biases, and, and bias in this sense is not a negative word, it's, right. it's neutral. It's a, it's a mm-hmm. shortcut. It's mm-hmm. a way, it's a predisposition to, to decide a certain way. You have to begin to look out for it, um, to know that you will not process information in a purely rational manner. Therefore, be bringing in different perspectives from people so you can get, you know, hopefully your biases cancel each other out. I even talked to one CEO who, his story did not make it into the book, but he, after going through a crisis, he actually appointed someone with the sole job of being the cognitive bias spotter on oh, the crisis great. management team. Just so they were, if they're getting into groupthink or if they're, you know, overweighting certain evidence, this person could step in and say, hey, let's, let's try and correct the course here because I think we're, we're, move, we're letting our biases get away from us. Um, so that and judging people, implicit attitude bias, a lot of work done here at Harvard. We all carry around these biases. Because yeah. back to judging you know, from prehistoric days, is, is this person a threat right. or, or not? We judge people very quickly based on race, age, gender, all kinds of factors that aren't, don't really tell you much about the person. And that's a evolutionary holdover. So it's important to remember to actually you know, don't judge a book by a cover, as my grandmother said, and yours mm-hmm. probably did, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, take time to actually get to know people before you judge them one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Very good. Now, you also said at the top of the hour, so I might return to that, that a lot of your work is based on conflict uh, resolution, negotiation. And when we talk about connectivity and influence and authority, conflict and negotiation has to come up. So maybe could we could you speak a little bit to that? Certainly. And, you know, one of the more illuminating experiences I had was an interview with a, with a CEO at a, a large healthcare organization here in, in Boston. And he said, you know, every interaction you have with another human being where you have a desired outcome is essentially a negotiation. It could be your coworker, your boss, your spouse, your kids. We're constantly negotiating. And so understanding the dynamics of how do you understand the other person's interest, and we very much preach interest-based negotiation. What are your legitimate interests? What are that person's legitimate interests? What do you have in common, which always outweighs what you are disagreeing about? Otherwise, you wouldn't be at the table. You'd be at war with each other. Acknowledging what you agree upon helps you build the common ground and the common spirit in order to tackle that which you disagree upon. And you can then get creative because you can begin to build confidence and through confidence build trust to get to hopefully a mutually agreeable outcome. 
So it's it's a lot about understanding those basics. And we have a, in the book a chapter on something called the walk in the wood, which is yeah. a simple four-step method for mm-hmm. getting through interest-based negotiation. We haven't got time to go through it now, I know. But it is if you think about the interactions you have during a given day, a lot of them are negotiating something. And so building up a proficiency in understanding, again, what are your interests, what are the other person's interests, and where can you find common ground and use that common ground to then resolve your differences, it's a great skill to have as a leader because you're using it constantly. Yeah, very good. And now you'll remind me, was it Yuri who said to educate, not escalate? Is that right? That's, there you go. I think, I think it was Yuri. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, so just to stop, pause, and realize what do we have in common rather than digging into positions and then to begin to educate each other uh, and with the hope of getting to some uh, understand, understanding and, and resolution. Well, Eric, we're coming around to the close, so and I'd like you to have the last word or two. So how would you like to close the interview? What um, What advice might you have for our listeners? Well, I think the, the the sad state of affairs in the world today is that uh, those of us who do crisis leadership are in a, are in a growth industry. And <laughs> yes. you look around us yeah. and you're seeing, you know, it's, it's not whether you're going to face a crisis, it's when. Yeah. And thinking that through, having a plan uh, where you're personally going to get through the crisis and then how you're going to help others get through it makes an enormous amount of difference. Knowing the first couple of steps to take will ground you in a way that you can take effective action. So whether it is financial misfortune, it is you know, misbehavior at the office, or heaven forbid, yeah. an active shooter or some other violent act or a natural disaster, this is now a core competency. Prepare yourself, prepare those around you, because the principles and the things that will make you good in a crisis, they make you better every day. Mm. It's not a separate set of skills. It's taking them to a higher level, and it will pay dividends throughout the organization. <laughs> That's very good. And I can hear Mike Yusim say, um, prepare for the worst and hope for the best. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, very good. How can our listeners learn more about your book? Uh, they can come to www.bit.ly forward slash your it book. That will take you to the public affairs page, which can tell them about the book and where they can get it. So it's bit.ly slash your it book. And um, we'd love to hear from readers. And uh, if they've got questions or comments, we're not hard to find. Very good. Eric McNulty, thank you so much for joining me tonight on the show to talk about your book, Your It, Crisis Change, and How to Lead When It Matters Most. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 